1: You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, we have a very special guest joining us here on this episode.
2: Yeah, we are ramping up our hockey coverage as hopefully the NHL uh, targets a January 13th start date. Uh, Had Liam McHugh on today. And now we are going to get one of NBC's uh, award-winning broadcasters on with us again. So uh, we're very, very excited here. Uh, we have somebody on who has extensive history in scouting, uh, uh, broadcasting, uh, cup of coffee as a head coach, uh, current NBC sports broadcaster. Uh, he's the guy who reports on the stuff going on between the benches. We are going inside the glass to one, Mr. Pierre Maguire, who is currently in Canada, as we speak, uh, hopefully getting ready for the start of the NHL season, like we are. So Pierre, welcome to You Know I'm Right. Thank you for joining
1: us. We really appreciate it.
3: Joe and Nick, really nice to visit with both
1: of you. Appreciate it, Pierre. So let's get started here right from the beginning. You're born in New Jersey. You end up growing up in Montreal before moving back to New Jersey. Was your first, your first love of hockey, was it growing up watching those great Canadians teams?
3: Actually, the first game I ever went to was 1965, at Old Madison Square Garden between the New York Rangers and the Montreal Canadiens, my grandfather took me to the game and uh, walking into the old garden, obviously not the same as a garden that was built in 67, but uh, walking into the old garden and the sights and the smells and the cigarette smoke and (laughs) the enthusiasm (laughs) of the players and the greatness of the game, uh, I was addicted right away. I was hooked. And, uh, yeah, obviously growing up in Montreal through the 1970s, uh, starting in 1971 with the Cup, obviously, I had a chance to watch that and um, the game seven win in Chicago, Ken Dryden and Henri Richard and Jacques Lemaire and Murder's Row. But I, I'll never forget, uh, you know, as a kid growing up in Montreal, just how great those Canadiens teams were.
1: Yeah, for sure the, yeah you don't really get that as much here in the States, but like the whole community in the area probably was just going, going crazy. Cause that, that was the team. That was the, the only major sport there. Uh, I don't know how much Canadian uh, football is loved that much up there, but uh, I'm sure it was just great to see that community really rally behind the team and, and get behind them. The closest we've kind of seen here, you know, we saw with the Rangers in 94, win the cup we in New York, Joe and I, and, you know, we, we put out a, uh, you know, a, a post saying we were going to have you on the show. And uh, one of the top questions I, I got back that I wanted to ask you is we got a, a question from, from Justin. He is uh, a longtime Rangers fan, uh, loves Henrik Lundqvist. He wants to know if it's okay for him to now root for the Capitals this year because he does not like the way that the king was shoved off the throne in New York and exited to D.C.? <laughs> Um I think you're allowed to cheer for whomever you want to cheer for. I think that's one of the beauties in the National Hockey League, the passion
3: base of our fans. It's phenomenal. And, you know, usually you're pretty loyal to one team and when that player wears your team sweater, you're extremely loyal to that player and then all of a sudden the player leaves your team and wears another sweater. Well, you may like him a little bit, but you're not going to cheer for his team. You're always going to cheer for yours, but that's one of the things that endears me so much to the National Hockey League. I respect Fans, so much in their passion for the game. It's a lot like people that are involved in the game. It's hard to survive in the National Hockey League, and it's hard to survive for a long time in the National Hockey League. And one of the only ways you make it is by having passion. And uh, I respect that about the fans a lot. But in terms of Justin's question, I have a hard time believing that he won't be cheering for the Rangers. He may like Henrik Lundqvist a lot, but I got to believe he's going to be cheering for the Rangers.
1: I think it's also worth noting that Justin said he currently lives in D.C., so maybe, maybe he's going <laughs> to end up being a big Capitals fan. All, all, caps, all caps he ended his, his question with, so we'll see how that how, how plays out. Uh, looks like the Rangers are heading in the right direction. So, Pierre, what a lot of people probably don't know, I mean, everybody knows you played hockey or a standout at Hobart College, but you also were on the baseball team and you played quarterback for the team for two years. Uh tell us a little about a bit about your loves for those games and you know what professional teams you liked during those times for, for football and baseball.
3: Well, when I left Canada to go back to the States to go to my last years of high school, I went to Burton Catholic High School, where I was coached by a living legend, still with us, Tony Karsich, uh, who is a football player at Syracuse University. And it was an amazing honor and privilege to play for Coach Karsich. Play for Bergen Catholic, uh, my teammates there in the football team are probably closer to me than any teammates I've had in any other sports, whether I'm playing pro or, or college in, in football, hockey, and baseball. Uh, so much respect for the school and the, the teammates I had there. Um, as far as baseball, I, I played baseball in college because I just love baseball. you know. But when I was a kid growing up in Montreal, my favorite football team uh, were the New York Giants. They still are my favorite football team, and uh, I will always be a Giants fan. My favorite baseball team uh, were the Montreal Expos, and I will always cheer for the Montreal Expos, and they don't exist anymore in Montreal, so they're obviously part of the Washington Nationals organization now, Uh, so I will miss the Expos. But uh, my favorite team growing up and always will be football, the New York Giants, and I watch every single Giants game, and I will always watch every single Giants game.
1: Giants are looking good and uh, sorry, Aaron and Yankee fans, but Joe judge is the best judge in town. All right. Right now. Uh, Pierre, I think maybe the next time the Giants are in the Super and the games on NBC, you call up your boss and say, I want to do some sideline reporting in football.
3: Yeah. I think Michelle Tafoya does a good enough job. And uh, my good friend Catherine Tappen does a great job of that. So I'll, I'll leave it to the ladies to do that. Cause they're so good at it. Uh, but here's a good giants history story. Um, their super bowl first but super bowl under coach Parcells. uh i was actually scouting in Granby, quebec not kidding you on a sunday afternoon uh watching Grandy play in a quebec major junior league game and i was there to watch a player by the name of philip boucher who ended up being a first round pick in the nhl played for a long time and, and won a stanley cup in pittsburgh and uh I remember sneaking out to go to the uh, coffee stand just to get scores on the Giants game. And so it was one of those. I'll always remember where I was for the first Giants Super Bowl and coach Parcells. I
1: was in Grandy, Quebec, watching the junior game. Wow. Well, unbelievable. <laughs> <You're something, laughs> you don't really hear something like that too often. That's wild. So, Pierre, uh, you graduated from college with an English degree. I'm sure that pays dividends now in your broadcasting career, but... Put us, put us in your shoes or your skates then there. Uh, you're probably thinking you're going to be playing professional hockey. So what what was your thought process behind majoring in English?
3: Well, I actually was going to go to law school. Um, that was my plan, and and uh, I had an opportunity to go play professionally in Europe. I did play professionally in Europe, and when that season was over, we made the playoffs, which was something that that team hadn't done in a long time. Uh, So I was really proud of that. And I I had so much respect for the players that I played with there. We had guys from the Czech Republic. We had guys from all over. Uh, It was a really eye-opening experience. I enjoyed it very much. Um, And then uh, I was fortunate enough to get signed by New Jersey. I came back and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time around the group and everything else went to training camp and got sent by Marshall Johnson and the late Max McNabb down to the uh, down to the minors and at that time, I just, Max couldn't have been more honest with me, Mr. McNabb and, and Marshall as well, and basically said, we see you as a call-up player, we don't see you as an everyday NHLer. And, uh, at that point I said, I gotta reevaluate my goals and I had a chance to go back to Europe and rather than do that and prolong it, I decided to get right into coaching and I went back to my alma mater one year at Hobart, I went to Babson College for three years I went to St. Lawrence University for two, and then I was hired by the Pittsburgh Penguins and was fortunate enough to be part of their two Stanley Cup winning teams in 91 and 92.
1: Yeah, an incredible journey there for you to get your start in hockey. And I believe, and I read that when you were at Hobart College, you were making $500 a season. And just to make ends meet, you were actually working as an English teacher. So that degree worked off as substitute math and physical education teacher in New York as well. And then I guess you just had this great sports knowledge because you were assistant lacrosse coach as well at Babson. Is that correct? And then uh, I was I was a head I was a head lacrosse coach at wow. Babson.
3: Uh, at Hobart, I was actually you're giving me a hundred dollars more than I earned. I only uh. made four hundred the first year, uh, Nick. But uh, you know the thing that's when I knew I really wanted to do it. Uh, I'd go on the road recruiting all over Western New York, come back late at night. New- waited around five o'clock in the morning to get the call to be a substitute school teacher that paid $50 a day. Uh, I would do that uh, until around one o'clock in the afternoon. Then I would come back to the building, get ready for practice, uh, and then go back out on the road again. And, and hopefully the next day get a, another $50 to be a substitute teacher. But Hobart treated me well, and it got me on the right path to uh, go work for a great man. And Sterling, the old New York Islanders head coach, I worked with Steve for three years. Absent and uh really spent a lot of time around the Boston area cultivating recruiting connections and laying the groundwork for what would eventually be
1: you know a real long career in hockey yeah and uh, I think a big turning point in you for your career is when you're at St. Lawrence you meet Scotty Bowman uh he was he was there a lot uh and you guys develop a relationship and then from there I guess he he just kept you in mind right and you ended up working with him for the Penguins
3: yeah, you know, it's pretty neat about that, Nick. Um, when I was at St. Lawrence, I was a real young Division I coach, and uh, Scotty was there. His daughter was actually applying to the school, Alicia, who ended up coming to St. Lawrence. And the reason why he went there is uh, to look at it with Alicia. Mike Keenan had worked for Scotty in Buffalo, and Mike Keenan was a St. Lawrence alum along with Jacques Martin. And they both told Scotty, their daughter should look at St. Lawrence. So he made the trek up from Buffalo. It's about a five-hour drive looked at the school and came to watch practice while his daughter was in the admissions office. And at the end of practice, he came into my office, I was about to get on the bike and ride it. And he said, boy, I loved your practice. He goes, I really enjoyed that. I said, well, thanks a lot. He goes, I'm Scotty Bowman. I said, well, sir, I know who you are. and Really nice to meet you. And he asked for my phone number and back then no cell phone. So I gave him my phone number. And uh, that night he called me up and he said, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I, If I go back to the national hockey, he was working on hockey night in Canada then if I go back as a coach, I'd love for you to come with me. And I was like, wow, really? I thought he was messing around with me. And then he almost became Rangers coach and general manager, believe it or not, before Neil Smith went there and he decided against it. But I could have, he asked me to go with him to New York. And then the next year he went to Pittsburgh and they hired me the day after he got hired in Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah. So by now we've reached the point, uh, you're back, you're in the NHL. You've had uh extensive coaching experience all throughout the 80s right more than six or seven years of coaching experience in the nhl uh you tr- transition and you become a pro scout. now uh for most people who know their hockey history uh, those 90s penguins team i uh yarmir yager ron francis right uh so my question right to start now is you're a scout uh, you're, you're working more with the scouting department, uh, as opposed to being hands-on with, uh, you know, actually coaching on the ice, uh, who were some of your better finds and when did you start and realize you had a, a real true, uh, fascination for scouting and you really had a, a knack and talent to do this?
3: Well, I think the scouting part goes back to when you're a college coach, Joe, if you really want to know the truth, because you don't have scouting staff. So you got to go out there and find your own players. So, uh. Uh, the art of recruiting is really a, a great groundbreaker in terms of evaluating talent and players and team building. Uh, and you get to do it away from the discretion and, and the media scrutiny uh, of people that, you know, forming opinions about your team building in about six months without giving you an ample opportunity to build your team appropriately. So that's when I kind of knew I really liked that in terms of the first year in Pittsburgh, um, our first pick was pretty good. Uh, we had the fifth pick overall in the 1990 draft. And I can tell you, I don't even have any notes here. The first pick overall was Owen Nolan. The second pick was Peter Nedved. The third pick was uh, Keith Primo. The fourth pick was Mike Ricci. And the Pittsburgh Penguins were proud to select with the fifth pick, Yarimer, Yarimer. So I like to think that I played a little bit of a role in that. I was really proud of that. Uh, obviously, yarmir went on to a great career, but that was an organizational pick. Everybody in the organization couldn't wait to get Yarimer, and we were blessed to have him. Uh, in terms of acquisition pro level, uh, we turned our hold different around of one year. Or so whether it was helping to get uh, Larry Murphy or Peter Taglianetti uh, from Minnesota in a trade that involved Jimmy Johnson and Chris Dahlquist or making the huge deal with the Hartford Whalers and giving up John Cullen and, and uh, Jeff Parker, who was a prospect out of Michigan State, and Zar- the late Zarli Zalapsky to get Ronnie Francis and Grant Jennings and and obviously Alfie Samuelson. So I was proud to say that I was part of that. Um, We made a lot of moves when I was, we traded our second pick overall in the 1990 draft for Joey, our second pick in the second round for Joey Mullen. So, I mean, there were a lot of moves and uh, Craig Patrick was a general manager. He did an amazing job. And Joe, I got to tell you, Nick, same thing. One of the most amazing things about Craig Patrick and his brilliance as a management person, he delegated authority really well he allowed you to go out and do your job and he trusted you to do your job. And when he called you and asked for your opinion, he valued your opinion. So he made everybody feel empowered and really an important part of the organization.
1: Yeah. And I I think uh, that's something you, you don't really see as much anymore. And I think that that's definitely key. You mentioned Yager so let's give you all the credit for scouting him. and So, I mean, I, I don't know how much, uh, you know, Czech Hockey League you're watching this year and, you know, watching, uh, you know, the Czech Extraliga with Jamir Jagger, But at 48 years old, do you think if, if given the opportunity, he could still contribute maybe as a fourth liner in the, in the, the National Hockey League? I think Yarmir can
3: still play as a depth player in the National Hockey League. He wouldn't be the Yarmir Yager that everybody knew as a goal-scoring phenom and a playmaking marvel and magician. Uh, Yarmir's thing, and I can tell you, you see all these guys in their pregame warm-up now. Yarmir was doing that back in 1990, 91, 92, and everybody around the league was like, yeah, he'll be tired by game 40. No, actually, he'll be stronger by game 40. Uh, His physical fitness routine was phenomenal. His passion for the game was overwhelming. He learned so much from Ariel Lemire, from Kevin Stevens, from Mark Recky from Brian Tracci. Brian Tracci played a huge role in the development of Yarmir, Yager, Yuri Herdina, uh, Ronnie Frank, You can go down the line, all the guys that really played a huge role in influencing Yarmir. But Yarmir was his own uh, best asset because of his work habits. He was phenomenally industrious when it came to working hard.
1: Yeah, I think you look at Yager's stats, they're un- unbelievable. And – he, he took three years and went to the KHL So in the prime of his career. So where do you think he would be ranked in all these offensive categories had he stuck, stuck those three? Today I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So, stop waiting and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at DirectTV.com. That's DirectTV.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package.
0: Hear that? That's the sound of someone trying to steal your crypto. Every day, thousands of hackers online are doing the same. That's why Arculus uses air gapped cold storage technology to protect your assets. Using our keycard and wallet app to form a protective barrier, Arculus insulates you from hackers and puts control of your digital assets back in your hands. Order the first truly air-gapped crypto wallet at GetArculus.com.
1: Three years in the NHL. Well, his, at
3: that point, I've talked to Yarmir about it. One of the things that he did by leaving the National Hockey League is he wanted to get his, his love for the game back. It was a different National Hockey League. Back then, and uh, you know, I've been to the town where he played. Played in Omsk, which is about an eight-hour, seven and a half to eight-hour plane ride east of Moscow. It's a long way away from the beaten trail, um, but it's an amazingly large town. There are over four million people that live there, uh, and it's kind of in a unique spot. It's not far from Mongolia. It's close to Kazakhstan. It's it's an interesting place. I've been there scouting, and I've been broadcasting. So. Uh, I know it well, but Yarmer really found his passion for the game there. And one of the guys that really helped him, its, it's a New York Ranger tie-in—was Alexei Cherapov, who was a first-round pick of the New York Rangers, who passed away during a game. And he was a phenomenal talent. I can tell you that kid would have been a game breaker in the NHL. But Yager loved him like a little brother, and Yager loved mentoring him. And uh, I think that really helped get Yarmer's passion back for the game.
2: Yeah. Rest in peace, Alexi. That was very, very sad when it happened. Uh, the Rangers teams are very good from the like 2010s, you know, all the way through the last decade. Uh, one could say that if they would have had that piece, maybe when they made that run back in 2013, 14, maybe that would have pushed them over the top. But uh, so we'll go back to you. Right. Uh, we're going to move on to your time with Hartford and, and beyond that in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to ask you uh, your extensive experience as a scout and assistant coach, right. Right. Uh, you got the opportunity to work for a really pristine organization right off the bat. As soon as you reached the NHL, how did you allocate your time? Because I think allocating your time as a scout uh, and as an assistant coach, a head coach, uh, I think there are, are different methods and, and ways of doing things. And uh, so my question to you is how did you do that then? And are there people, and I'm sure there are, are there people in the, the, uh, the NHL now who work for different organizations who reach out to you, who ask you for advice, who ask you for pointers, you know, where should we, we start here? You know, how much time should we dedicate to watching players live? How much time should we dedicate to the film room? Uh, how much time should we dedicate to interviewing players and, and really going and doing our research there and, and furthering, uh, you know, furthering that process? Well, I hear from a lot of people, Joe, on a day-to-day basis, whether they be
3: managers, assistant managers, directors of player personnel, Amateur scouts, pro scouts, assistant coaches, head coaches, you know, you make your living in the rink. At least I try to make my living in the rink and I love being at the rink. Uh, back when I first joined Pittsburgh, uh, I did a lot of different things there. I worked with our players down on the farm uh, in Muskegon, Michigan, in the old IHL. Uh, I worked with a lot of our prospects that had been drafted. I did a lot of amateur scouting uh, in the first cup year. I actually did all the advanced scouting for the NHL team and ran the meetings before every series uh, the late Bob Johnson and Scotty Bowman asked me to do that so that's what I did the 91 run and I was with the team uh, during playoff series and when the team wasn't playing I was out scouting our opponents or our potential future opponents so time management wasn't really hard because I lived I breathed I slept and I ate hockey 24 hours a day and I kind of still do that so uh, I really didn't have a problem with time management um, I, it's something that I loved if you really want to get into the hockey business. You got to like to fly a lot. You got to like to drive a lot. You got to like a lot of bad weather. You got to like a lot of bad food and a lot of cold coffee. And if you like all those things, chances are, you're going to really like being in hockey.
1: So you get in hockey and maybe it wasn't always your goal as, as in when, once you started scouting, but you get that opportunity to be a head coach eventually with the Whalers. You become the youngest head coach in the NHL at the time. Uh, when you get that call that you're going to be, you know, taking over as the head coach at the age you were, how excited were you? And, you know, what went through your mind before you even coached your first game?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting, Nick, I was actually over in Sweden skating, um, and we were trying to get a player signed by the name of Andre Nicholson, uh for a certain date. There was a drop dead date and that was before uh, the 94 uh, winter Olympics in Lillehammer so over scouting in Sweden and Finland uh, and in Germany, believe it or not. And I got a call on the tail end of my trip uh, from the Whalers and they said, please come back. We're going to make a coaching change and a management change and we you to come back and coach. So I, you know, I had about nine hours to think about it on the plane ride back from <laughs> Stockholm uh, to New York. And uh, I was excited about it. I was really excited to work with Kevin McCarthy, who's a longtime assistant coach in the league and uh, Paul Gillis, who was the other assistant at the time. And uh, one of the things I knew we had to do is we had to cut goals against down. And if you look at the numbers, I was really proud of that, that staff and those players in particular. We cut 82 goals against from the year before. Uh, if you did that in today's NHL, you would definitely be coached here. I mean, <laughs> you would be in a really good position. Uh, it was a different NHL. The red line uh, was in play. Um, there, there were a lot of things that were different in the NHL back then, but we were able to cut 82 goals against from the year before. And that's something I was really proud of, uh, with those players and, and with Sean Burke and Patek Rose as our goaltender and he got hurt. And then, uh, Mike Leonard doozy was our other goalie, but we had a young player by the name of Christopher Pronger that joined us that year. And, uh, to see the growth in his game from the start of the year, and the end of the year was huge. And the guy that really deserved a lot of credit for that was a late Brad McCrimmon. Uh, who I went up to when I got the job. And it's one of the first things I thought of. And I went to Brad and I said, listen, I know you had the opportunity to have your own room on the road. Would you mind looking after Chris? And he goes, it'd be my pleasure. And then he said, I'd love to play with him, too. And it eventually became really a stalwart tandem for us. And so uh, the late Brad McCrimmon, for a lot of the things that Christopher Pronger has done in his career, uh, the late Brad McCrimmon deserves a lot of credit for
2: So I believe it was in the 93 and 94 season. You were replaced midseason by Paul Holmgren. And now what's interesting is we've seen over the past couple of years, we saw this in 16 with the Penguins. They replaced uh their head coach midseason with Mike Sullivan. They won the Stanley Cup. We saw this not this fast season, the following uh, the previous season with the St. Louis Blues. They fired Mike Yo midseason, hired Craig Ruby, won the Stanley Cup, right? So it's kind of getting to the point where these coaching changes midseason are kind of happening more frequently and, and teams are using it as a strategy, possibly as a catalyst to kind of get their room back together and, and kind of give them a jolt that they need. Uh, but for you, obviously, that's a very difficult experience. It's an experience that not many uh, coaches in the NHL really tend to share. Uh, what was the toughest lesson that you learned during that time period that you would take on with you? Uh, and if you the opportunity ever came across your way again, uh, that you would learn from and, and do things differently a second time.
3: Yeah, Joe, you're also forgetting 2012 with uh, Brent or with uh, Daryl Sutter, sorry, in L.A. Yes, sir. And uh, he was really the guy that everybody said, wow, L.A.'s in eighth spot. And uh, they were actually out of the playoffs when they hired Daryl. And Daryl came in and eventually they won the cup. And I think a lot of people looked at that and said, you know what, there's something to this. It can yeah. give you a little bit of a jolt. and give you a little bit of energy. Um, first of all, one of the things I learned is it's really hard to win if you don't have super elite players. And we were a building organization at the time. We were two years into a five-year rebuild in Hartford. So one of the things I would try to do is manage expectations better. Uh, I really thought, you know, if you go back and look at the first 20 games that I coached Hartford, we, we had the third best record in the National Hockey League. Um, and so we were doing it with guys that really believed in the message and what we were trying to implement as a coaching staff. And then all of a sudden we had a lot of injuries. We went on a West coast road trip and we got decimated by injury and that's where the real started to fall off. And so the message didn't resound as well. So the first thing I had to do is manage expectation. better. second thing is I think you have to communicate uh, a little bit better, and a little less forcefully than maybe what I was doing at the time. Um, and so you learn that over time. I think all coaches learn that over time, but the biggest thing I think is just managing expectation a little bit better. And I think if we had done that, we would have grown the brand better as a coaching staff and as an organization.
1: So Pierre, do you ever see hockey back in Hartford? Do you think more expansion is coming after Seattle and how great has hockey in Las Vegas been?
3: Well, let's take the last part first. Uh, Vegas hockey has been phenomenal. Uh, Mr. Foley, the owner, George McPhee, the president now, the first general manager, Kelly McCrimmon, those men have done an outstanding job with their scouting staffs. And Mr. Foley deserves a lot of credit for being a visionary and knowing that that marketplace would really work and Bill Daly and Gary Bettman for supporting that vision. They, they've been outstanding. So they deserve a lot of credit. It's electrifying to the games in Vegas, it's electrifying to broadcast games in Vegas, and I'm sure it's unbelievable to play games in Vegas. Um, I, I think hockey in Vegas has been great. Do I think we're gonna have more expansion? Potentially down the road, but I think the first thing that Commissioner Bettman needs to look at, and I'm sure is after Seattle comes in, is you know, how do we stabilize the franchise in Arizona? Uh, how do we stabilize to make sure that Carolina stays in Carolina? Uh, what do we do with the team in South Florida? And how do we make sure that marketplace can be as good as it once was? So I think there are internal issues that the league has to fix before they think about another expansion. One of the primary candidates I have to believe for expansion would be Quebec city. If they ever went that way, the building is phenomenal, the fan base is energized and they really want to have it. Uh, so I, I do think potential for expansion is there, but first they have to solidify two or three teams in our league that are existing right now. And then finally um, I don't think the NHL can go back to Hartford. That's not a knock on Hartford. It's just, Hartford's not the city that it once was when the Whalers first came in. It used to be the number one uh, insurance capital of the world. Now it's 19th. So, you know, business has been difficult there, obviously. And Rangers' farm team has done well there. Mike Kavanaugh is a coach at the University of Connecticut, the men's team. They've done fantastically well. But I can tell you one thing. Most fans in Hartford were either Bruins fans or Ranger fans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time to warm up to being a Whaler fan. Yeah. You had the core base of about 12,000 that were amazing, but I can tell you coaching against the Bruins in Hartford or coaching against the Rangers in Hartford, you always felt like it was a road game. I can tell you that right now. It was, it was hard to get your fans aboard, but uh, I enjoyed my time in Hartford learned a lot. And uh, you know, I still live in the state of Connecticut. So I I like the state obviously.
1: Yeah. And I think you made a good point about stabilizing teams because we always hear about relocation and, uh, the Islanders, they did a good job here. They're staying steady. They're going to be opening a new stadium at Belmont. I'm sure we'll see, of course, your buddy, Mike Francesa there. and We'll see you there plenty of times uh, between the benches as well. And I, I, I got to ask you this question. We had Liam McHugh on as well. Do you think, I mean, despite how crazy the story was, that John Spano deserves some credit for keeping the Islanders in Long Island? No. Don't, but I I don't know about it, but I tell you who deserves a ton of credit
3: is Gary Bettman. Uh, He's done a phenomenal job in terms of being loyal to to fans around the hockey world. I don't think people realize what he's done uh, with the Canadian assistance program, the revenue sharing around the league, uh, to keep less established franchises in their marketplaces to give them an opportunity to build. Uh, One of them glowingly, I tell you, is Nashville. They've done a phenomenal job in Nashville. Another one would be Tampa. Um, the Tampa ownership group led by Jeffrey Vinnick is as good better than any ownership group in all of professional sport. But, you know, you speak about owners and you talk about the Islanders. what a job, uh, Scott Malkin and John Ledecky have done there. Uh, and Lou Lamorello, my dear friend and the president and general manager there, they have done a magnificent job with the Islanders. Their team is built to last a long time ago. I had the privilege right at Madison square garden I was asked by Mr. Ledecky to talk to the fathers, they were on the Islanders' father trip, so they came into our studio, uh, Nick and and Joe, and I said, uh, if the Islanders were a stock, I would buy them because you could see this five years ago that it was really starting to fester and grow in a positive way. But I think Mr. Malkin and Mr. Ledecky have done an amazing job as owners there. Uh, the building's going to be beautiful. The Islander fans are going to be jumping for joy. They're going to be so excited. Yes, yes, yes. I can't wait to hear that uh, when I go to games there. and uh, They've got a man. There's a hockey icon in Lou Lamorella running the franchise. So they're in a really good spot.
1: So after Hartford, you are a scout and an assistant coach for the centers. You end up becoming the inaugural head coach for the ECHL's Baton Rouge Kingfish. And you then exercise an escape clause in your contract to become a radio analyst for CJADS, broadcast of Montreal Canadiens games. And you never really looked back. You worked on some of the team's regional television broadcasts for the sports network. And when the primary, primary color analyst, Guy Green, was unavailable, I was a contributor for TSN's That's Hockey. You were, you were there. You were in the booth. So what was that transition period like for you from uh, front office, coaching, behind the bench to into the broadcast booth? Well,
3: it's interesting.
1: Got into the broadcast business I was coach as you said down on the East Coast Hockey League was
3: Lewis Blues Farm Team at the time and Mike Keenan and Bob Berry asked me to go down there and run it and I said with pleasure and I really enjoyed in there the hockey we had amazing fans I think we had six to eight thousand people a game it was really great we had some players one of them Shane Knighty eventually made the National Hockey League I was really proud of Shane but we had a lot of guys move up and play in the American League the old IHL uh, Blaine Man- Blair Manning excuse me Alan Sirwa wow, really good kids I remember them all I really enjoyed working with them and, and that was a great year I loved that year but I got a call from the late Ted Blackman who was a, a broadcasting icon in the city of Montreal and Ted called me up he said listen we've been listening to tapes uh, of you when you were coaching in the NHL and we really think that you have the kind of Uh, potential to be a broadcaster. We want to make some changes with Montreal Canadiens broadcast. They own the rights. They said, we'd offer you to come in the next time you're in Montreal for a test in the studio. So I went there uh, probably two or three weeks later after our season was over, and I met with Ted, and um, they offered me the job right after the buyout. And uh, (laughs) it wasn't for the same way I was making coaching, I can tell you that right now but I took because I thought that it was something I wanted to do for a year or two and then go back to coach, take a little bit of a break. And the rest is history. I mean, it just took off from there. I got to tell you, Nick and Joe, it just took off and I'm really grateful for Ted Blackman actually reaching out and giving me the opportunity to work with an amazing organization in Montreal and a a fantastic radio station, CJAD at the time. And they're still legendary
1: 75 years later, CJAD still on the air and,
3: they are the voice of Montreal. They really
1: are. So TSN reacquires the Canadian national cable rights to hockey in the NHL. In 2002, you're hired as the lead hockey analyst. And at this point, I got to bring up our next fan submitted question. Former co-worker of yours at TSN, Adnan Verk, He had a question. <laughs> I don't know if you remember him at all. He wants to know. Very much. Ad, I know he wants to know, very well. Adna we had on the show, he wants to know if, if you remember the fact that although he's born and raised in Toronto, he's a huge flyer.
4: Sure, you may be able to hear just how crispy the McDonald's crispy, juicy, tender chicken sandwich is. But that's just the beginning. The full crispy, juicy, tender experience comes after you take your first bite. But why stop there? Order ahead on the app and get medium fries and soft drink for free. Now that's a deal that tastes even better than it sounds. Valid 830 to 919,
3: 1011 to 1031 and 1122 to 121221. Valid one time per week. McDonald's app download and registration required.
4: Sure, you may be able to hear just how crispy the McDonald's Crispy Juicy Tender Chicken Sandwich is. But that's just the beginning. The full Crispy Juicy Tender experience comes after you take your first bite. But why stop there? Order ahead on the app and get medium fries and soft drink for free. Now that's a deal that tastes even better than it sounds. Ba-da-da-ba-ba. Valid 8.30 to 9.19, 10.11 to
0: 10.31 and 11.22 to 12.12.21. Valid one time per week. McDonald's app download and registration
1: required. I what your thoughts were when you found out about that. So I, I do remember
3: and uh, Adnan knew that I was, you know, obviously with the Pittsburgh Penguins for a little while and, and had some success there. And So we'd have some fun in the studio. But when I knew Adnan, He was actually working in the control room, He wasn't on air at all. And that man worked his tail off to get to where he is today. Uh, And he's a professional. He's really good at what he does. And uh, I haven't seen Adnan in a while. I see him on the air, but I haven't seen him in a while. And um, he cut, like, I can tell you right now, one of the keys for when you're working on hockey broadcasts are the people that cut your tape. And if, if, if you have real good tape cutters, you got a chance to be really good on the air. And he was outstanding at what he did uh, in the video room before he became on air present. So I'll always remember Adnan for everything he did to help all of us TSN at the time, which was a real cutting edge show. And a lot of what you see on TV today, that all started at TSN way back in the early two thousands.
2: So we've now reached the TSN portion of your career journey, and it would be remiss to not mention all of the phenomenal people uh, that you got to spend time with and got to, call your colleagues and got to work with right so now we've reached the point where i'm going to ask you about legends like gordon miller and bob mckenzie and what those men have meant to you and your career and what kind of uh professional advice or tidbits and nuggets that they've given you uh through the years that have strengthened your talents and made you a better broadcaster
3: um first of all those guys aren't just colleagues, they're amazingly close and very personal friends. Uh, Dave Hodge would be another person from TSN. James Duffy would be another person. Uh, Chris Cuthbert, who's now moved on to Rogers Sportsnet, he would be another, uh, but these are iconic figures in Canadian broadcasting and in hockey broadcasting in general. Um, I'm so proud to say that I worked at that company. I still do a lot of work for them at trade deadline. I still do a lot of work for them free agent frenzy time. And I have a lot of tele- radio work for them across Canada. So I'm still a part of them. Um, but Bob and Gordon in particular are dear, dear friends, Joe. And the number one lesson I got from uh, Bob McKenzie, don't be first, be right. And that was something that I will always remember and cherish. And from Gordon Miller, make sure you're the most prepared person for every single broadcast that you do. And I've always tried to do that. And he wasn't the only person that told me that. Uh, our great friend, the president of the New York Rangers, John Davidson, who was my partner back at the beginning of the NBC shows, John also was very, very prepared. And we used to tell me that a lot. Be the, Have a story about every single player in the game. And if you have that, you'll be very, very successful.
1: So 2006, NBC Sports, they acquired the AHL games. Obviously, it was Outdoor it was Life Network, then Versus, but then NBC Sports and the transition. When you're approached to... Go between the benches, inside the glass, what were, your, what were your thoughts on that process and any concerns at all for, for your safety? I know there's been a few close calls over the years with the pucks flying at you, but what was your thought process when you were approached with that idea for that, that concept?
3: Well, Nick, it's pretty interesting you would ask that. First of all, in 2004, during the Tampa-Calgary Stanley Cup final, I was sitting on a, on a studio uh, riser with Bob McKenzie and Gordon Miller doing hits pregame back to Canada because uh, obviously the Calgary story was a substantial story this before game five and uh, Sam Flood executive producer and TV genius at NBC uh, came up to me and he today hey, we really like your work you'd be interested or do you think you could broadcast the game from between the benches and Nick I said right away I know I can do it but I can assure you that the NHL will never allow it to happen so uh, you know, I don't think we should talk much more about it because I don't see that happening. He says, you leave that to Dick Brassall, Ken Shanzer, and myself. And if we can get it done, we want to hire you to broadcast from between the benches. I said, sure. And sure enough, we had the lockout in nuclear winter in 0405. And then in 0506, we started up again. And, uh, and we, I will never forget the first game was in Detroit. Um, it was between Flyers and, and Detroit. And I can tell you it went real smooth. And that's when I knew Sam Flood was onto something. And it grew over time. But this doesn't happen without Dick Eppers, Dick saw Ken Changer, and especially Sam Flood. That was his vision. And it worked
2: amazingly well. It really did. And I would go further to say that I think that concept has far-reaching effects because now what we see is every single team in the NHL designates one person or one broadcaster to report from between the benches. Uh, You see this all the time, right? And uh, in NBC, we we've seen other people do it guys like Joe Micheletti, who, who Nick and I have, have grown really accustomed to uh, watching and listening to Rangers broadcasts. but you've worked with a lot of great people at NBC. Uh, Obviously very similar to the TSM point I brought up before Uh, the terrific doc Emmerich, who, Hopefully, Nick and I will have on this show very soon. Uh, we interviewed Liam McHugh, uh, people like Yolchek, who I'm sure is a very dear friend of you, a dear friend of yours, Ken Albert, Catherine Tappan. Uh, so, my question is: ten years from uh, ten years ago, uh, I don't think a lot of people were as optimistic uh, as on the growth of what we've seen. Uh, NBC really contribute, I think, to the game of hockey. And there are a lot of concepts along the way that have really uh, also grown the game, such as the Winter Classic, such as the concept of, of moving the draft and having the draft in different locations and becoming much more fan interactive. All concepts that I'm sure the network and the league have really uh, cooperated on and worked together with. Uh, how proud of you that the game, from where it was during the 2004-2005 season that did not happen in the lockout, uh, how proud of you that the game has basically gone from the point where it was uh, to where it is now and, and as, as financially successfully as it is now, now that we've seen Vegas coming to the league, Seattle coming to the league. Uh, the pandemic hit us real hard this year, but revenues are still, you know, pretty high and how proud of you of that.
3: Well, I'm extremely
2: proud. I feel very fortunate to have been part of an amazing team at, at
3: NBC and, You know, it started with the great Doc when he left the New Jersey Devils to come full time at NBC is the same time I left TSN to come full time at NBC. And, you know, before that, we started in 05, 06 with John Davidson and for one year. And then Eddie Olchuk joined us. and He's been with us for 14 years. Uh, But Doc and I started it with John 15 years ago. And uh, it was a lot different show. You know, Catherine Tappan jumped in, Liam McHugh came over, Keith Jones was there. Now we've added Patrick Sharp and Anson Carter. Uh, Mike Milbury was there for a very long time, right from the start. Um, A lot of people have have sweated a lot. They've bled a lot. They've sacrificed a lot to make this thing really work. But the number one goal, and this was always Sam Flood's thought, uh, it's not about us. It's about the game and it's about the players. And so anybody that's ever worked there knows that and that's what they commit to. And we care so much about growing the brand. And none of this ever would have happened without the vision of Sam Flood, the support of Dick Ebersole, the support of Ken Shanzer, but more than anything else, the spirit of cooperation from Gary Bettman to Bill Daley, to the NHL managers, to the NHL coaches and all the players. And I'm gonna give you an example, Joe. 2007, Anaheim played in the Stanley Cup final against Ottawa. And there was no inside the glass position in Anaheim. And Sam Flood and I, early in the morning uh, before game one, I believe, went to see Brian Burke, who was working out in the Anaheim Ducks dressing room at the time. And we said, Listen, we, we need to have a place to work. And Brian goes, Well, I hired Pierre in Ottawa or in Hartford. I have no problem with it. He can broadcast from the end of our bench. And so, to show you how the position had grown, Brian Burke gave us the ability to broadcast Stanley cup final games on his bench right next to his trainers and coaches and right behind his players. And that's when I knew the thing was going to work. So Brian Burke deserves a lot of credit for that too. So the spirit of cooperation amongst the national hockey league and the people at NBC is what really helped grow this whole thing.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely incredible. And, you know, a big event that wouldn't happen without Gary Bettman or the execs at NBC is obviously the winter classic and now the stadium series. So, for you personally, what was your favorite outdoor game you got to work, you know, taking into account, uh, you know, who's playing, what the stadium is, and also what was the, the coldest you've been at one of those? Uh,
3: well, the coldest is easy. Uh, Detroit, Chicago, I can tell you, it was 09. I was doing the World Junior Ottawa. I flew in the morning of the game from Ottawa on January the 1st to do the game at Wrigley Field. Uh, back then I skated and I didn't have any socks on. Uh, So, I skated without my socks on my skates and on the ice in the warm up. So, you start a little lather and a little sweat. It was cold and it was windy. And that's a game where Pavel Datsuk was blowing right through the Chicago Blackhawk defense. And I said, That's a wind aided goal. Datsuk just got blown right through the defense. And it really was amazing to witness. Um, But I got back on the plane to go back to Ottawa to do the quarterfinal games of the World Junior with Gordon Miller. My feet were so cold, I started losing toenails. That's how cold I was. So that's the coldest one. 20 uh, in 2009 in Chicago the coldest I've ever been. In terms of games, they've all been phenomenal. Uh, just amazing. Uh, um, I can't even begin to tell you just how special it is to do every single game, whether it be at Yankee Stadium or, or in Pittsburgh at Heinz Field. Uh, being at Wrigley Field uh, you know they're just there's so many Foxborough Montreal and and Boston I'll never forget that one so they're all really good Rangers playing played down at the Citizens Bank Park that was awesome so I can't pick one but I could tell you the one I was the coldest and that was in Chicago
1: <laughs> yeah so I, I me personally the I went to the Citizens Bank one for Philly Rangers and uh, I, I couldn't believe it started snowing. I thought, I thought uh, Bridgestone manufactured the snow just to have a great visual there. <laughs> it was so cold, my two contacts popped out. I couldn't see anything and uh, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing experience. So obviously those are like awesome Stanley Cups, you've done so many. Of course you did Winter Olympics 2014, you're right there, T.J. Oshi, amazing performance and uh, just unbelievable there. Now, we're hearing some rumors here with uh, a potential new CBA. We might see the return of NHL players in the next Winter Olympics. Do you think that would be – obviously, it would be good for the sport, but do you think that would be a good thing for the National Hockey League? And obviously, it would be a good thing for NBC. But where do you see that playing out, and what is your hopes when it comes to the Winter Olympics and National Hockey League? Well, Nick, I sure hope that we're going to have NHL
3: players at the Olympics. Uh, it's the most amazing thing. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of doing two Summer Olympics and the, the Winter Olympics since 2002. So lots of different Winter Olympics. And it's just it's an amazingly special honor uh, and a privilege that you should never take for granted when you're involved in the Olympics. And I don't. Um, I'm glad, and I hope we do have players in Beijing. Um, in 2022, that would be fantastic. I think the biggest thing is the players want to play, Nick. Um, The players were disappointed. They didn't go to Korea. Uh, I was there. Um, I really enjoyed being in Korea. The Korean fans were amazing. The hockey was good, but it wasn't the caliber of the best NHL players. It was probably equivalent to elite American Hockey League level, but everybody was about the same. We had a great gold medal game between Germany and Russia, and obviously the Russians won on a late goal. Um, But that being said, I really hope the NHL back and in Beijing, and I believe they will be.
1: Yeah, obviously, I think without the NHL players, uh, Russia – or obviously not Olympics, they weren't called Russia, but they have an unfair advantage when it comes to the the Olympic Games. I want to talk about your experience doing water polo in the the summer games, though. Are we going to see you back there next summer? I hope so. And also, what was your thought process when NBC approached you and said, hey, we'd like you to be a reporter – for water polo,
3: well, I love the sport. Number one, number two, I respect the athletes so much. Um, Maggie Stephens is probably the Wayne Gretzky of women's water polo. She's a phenomenal athlete. She just graduated from Stanford a couple of years ago. Um, I had the privilege of watching her grow up. She was just going to be a freshman at Stanford when she won gold in London, and she was off the charts great. And obviously, in Rio, she was better than great. she, she really is the Wayne Gretzky of women's water polo and, and something that I respect her so much as an athlete um, and as a person and as an ambassador for the sport. The American women are so much, so much better than most of the teams they play. Um, it's phenomenal to watch their athleticism and, and power and strength. The men are catching back up, but they've got a lot of competition. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to Tokyo or not. I was supposed to go there last summer, and I was looking forward to it but now we're waiting to see whether people will actually be calling games from Tokyo. So still don't know about that, Nick, but if that's, I will definitely go. I love doing water polo and I love going to the Olympics. So it's, it's a marriage made in heaven for me. If I get the chance, I'll be there.
1: Yeah. And doc was perfect with water polo as well. I mean, he still got, to Oh, he was the great. And I'll tell
3: you what, what people don't realize is, is water polo is just like hockey, just without, you know, ice, it's just water. Right. And it's, it's a It's as competitive and it's as tough and it's as nasty as a real physical hockey game. It really is. And I will tell you this, the American women in particular, they're huge. Most of them are hockey fans. They couldn't believe that I was doing the games. They couldn't believe doc was, it was really cool. Um, And a lot of them are California ladies and they love the sharks. They love the Kings and they love the ducks. So they're spread all over the state. But they're huge hockey fans, most of those young ladies.
1: Yeah, great versatility by the NBC team. Obviously, you and Doc did water polo. Kenny Albert, he's always doing track and field there. And, of course, Liam is, is hosting and everybody else just, just transitioning over. So it's really a great the versatility there that the whole team has the whole, from the broadcast perspective. Kenny, Kenny Albert
3: is a marvel. Um, you know, I did – almost seven weeks of hockey with him in Edmonton this year uh, during the playoffs in the, in the bubble out there. And I will tell you what, that man is awesome. And, and then a couple days later, he leaves a pod and he's doing an NFL football game. I just, he blows me away. I, I text him all the time because he gets a lot of giants games and I text him during the game, like, get my team over the goal. Let's go. We got to win this game. <laughs> and he laughs, you know, and uh, I watch him do baseball games and I'm like, I can't believe this guy does football. He does baseball. He does hockey he does Rangers radio, he does NBA games. I mean, Kenny Albert is, is amazing to me and how he does his job, he really is.
2: So I wanted to bring up TJ Oshi before, uh, again, because one of the greatest on-ice interviews I think I've ever seen was Oshi's post-game interview after the Capitals with the Stanley Cup in 2018, when he spoke about his his father and his battle with Alzheimer's and, and how much it meant to him. And I think it was one of the most riveting interviews I've ever seen. I think it was one of the most dramatic interviews you've ever seen. It's just real raw emotion. Obviously those guys dedicate their entire lives to work so hard to, to, to reach that ultimate goal. But I think it it brings up a really great point, which is I think what interviews are to the broadcast side of things, uh, truly lifeblood. I think there's really innate talent and innate ability to be able to, to be a broadcaster and to be an interviewer and to be able to connect with people, uh, to be able to connect with players, to have a rapport with players, to have relatability with players. And I think what we're seeing now is you are one of those, those rare people and those for other sports as well. Uh, you're one of those people who become a, a trailblazer in the sense uh, in this new digital world where you're getting that perspective, that on ice perspective that not a lot of people get to do. You have uh, such a privilege, right? That you get to interview these players, right? So, obviously, not one interview stands out for you. I'm sure mostly every interview you do is your favorite interview that you ever do, right? Uh, but just talk us through. Uh, maybe some players uh, have a much closer relationship with you. Uh, if there are your, some of your favorite interviews, you know, if you want to share them with us, you know, go ahead. Uh, but how does it feel being in that role and having as much responsibility as you do uh, and being able to, to get that passion and emotion across uh, with hockey fans all over the world. Joe, that's an awesome question. Um, And it's something I'm not going to take lightly. So I'm going to
3: think back over all the interviews I've had the privilege of doing since I've been in the league. And one of them that stands out, I'll remember clear as day is 2007 team Mussolini on the ice in Anaheim after they won the cup and you know I've known Timo a long time and respected him as a hockey player and knew all the different things he had gone through and the ups and the downs. And one of the downs was when he played for Colorado and he was a healthy scratch in a Colorado-San Jose playoff series. And he asked to see me in the lobby of the hotel, at the Vermont Hotel in San Jose, and he was devastated. I thought his career was going to be over. But what saved him was a lockout. And I'll never forget doing that interview in 07 on the ice. And he started crying. And it took everything. I'm going to tell you this, Joe and Nick, it took everything in my power not to start crying with them. Um, And I knew I had a lot more interviews to do that night, but that was one that was just raw emotion that was coming out of Timu and his honesty was overwhelming. And I was really appreciative of that. Um, Chris Pronger before a game in the Edmonton Carolina playoff series at center ice, a player that I had once coached and, It was going crazy in Edmonton. And I said, Chris, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And he goes, no, it's my pleasure because I know when I'm talking to you, it's a big game. And it was a big game. It was a Stanley Cup final game. So that meant a lot to me. That's when I really kind of felt that inside the glass and that position was really going to grow, Joe. So I thought that was positive. But the coaches have been phenomenally important and part of this too in terms of the interviews and the information they give us during the games. Um, You know, Peter Laviolette's been really good. Mike Babcock has been great. Alain Vigneault, when I had the chance to do him, was phenomenal. Joel Quenville uh, in Chicago, all those Stanley Cup finals. Daryl Sutter, who a lot of people can't get to say, hi, I'm Daryl. Daryl Sutter was phenomenal uh, in a lot of the interviews we did with him. So I've got so many that I really remember and I'm grateful for. But the Timu interview in 07 is one that I will always remember. And then internationally... Nick and Joe, um, Megan Duggan, after the Americans lost the gold medal game to Canada on the women's side in 2014 in Sochi, interviewing Megan Duggan may have been the hardest thing I've ever had to do. She was just so into it and so crushed like the rest of the team, the way they lost that game. And um, just standing next to her, waiting for the cameras to roll, that was really hard. That was, that was
1: unbelievably difficult two other uh you know moments that i think of with you uh, obviously capitals win the stanley cup what a sigh of relief for Ovechkin! just lets it all out and you know, true warrior you get to see him win the cup for the first time and then march 19th 2012 devils rangers msg opening face-off brawl you were right there best seat in the house for that what was that like well, that was a lot of bad blood between two organizations
3: that really were mad at one another. And the coaches were extremely mad at one another. John Tortorella on one side and Pete DeBoer on the other. Um, that was nasty. And uh, what I remember is Stu Bickle and Ryan Carter, two Minnesota guys um, that were really prominent in that. You know, that's a lot of games ago, but that's what I remember. You know, I know Stu's coaching now in the North American Hockey League for the Minnesota Magicians, uh, which is really cool. Uh, I know his owner really well, Ronnie Barron. And Ronnie keeps telling me what a great job Stu's doing coaching out there in the North American Hockey League. And I see Ryan Carter a lot uh, when I do games in Minnesota. He's working on the broadcast side now for the Minnesota Wild. So that that was a crazy game, and that was a crazy start to a game. So I remember that one. Those are those are get. That's a game in particular. You don't forget. <laughs> you just don't forget that.
1: One. And I think, I mean, for me personally, as a fan, I think Tortorella is so great for the game of hockey from a, you know, media perspective. I know sometimes it doesn't give you much. I had the privilege of one time uh, being in one of his uh, pregame press conferences before a playoff game. And I got to tell you, I just, I just, I just love the way he just speaks his mind. Uh, is that difficult for you as a broadcaster though? Sometimes.
3: No, not at all. Uh, one time, John was really ticked off that I was going to interview him before a game, or before, between periods, sorry. So it was right after the second tee time out of a first period. It was a 12 o'clock start in New York. And he was mad that the game was starting that early, so he was already angry before I came over to interview him. And John and I are friends. Um, John used to work with us at TSN. People forget that uh, before he went back to coach with the New York Rangers. People forget that about John. Um, so I've known John a long time. I coached against John, too. Uh, when he was in Buffalo and I was in Hartford. So, again, I've known John a long time. I respect him very much. He's an excellent coach. Uh, but I remember him saying to me, can't believe I have to do this interview. And I was like, Torx, think about the payroll that you have. Think about how you're doing. Without TV, you're not doing what you're doing. So you can do this interview for me, okay, Torx? Okay, Pierre, no problem. And he was great. But I, I, uh, I think John's really good TV, and I think John's been great. Uh, everywhere he's coached, but in particular, he's been awesome in Columbus. He's been fantastic for that franchise.
2: Yeah, he's a master motivator. Uh, We really enjoyed his time when he was a Ranger. Uh, So let's get into some fun things now, right? So uh, I wanted to talk to you about, in particular, uh, potential rule changes or tweaks to the game uh, that always seem to come up, uh, never get seem to pass, but always kind of seem to stay – kind of on the radar, right? Uh, you are a big advocate for uh, partial visors in the game, and obviously that makes sense given the, the research and the advancements that we see now. Obviously, first and foremost, the health and safety of the players are very important. Head injuries are becoming an increasingly difficult part of the game. Uh, Nick and I are huge Rangers fans, so obviously Mark Stahl is a perfect example of this. He uh, never, really never really seemed to be the same player after he had that, uh, that head injury. Uh, you're an advocate for removing the red line because you think it'll open up the game. You think it'll showcase more skill for the players. Uh, That's something that I think a lot of people do agree with me personally. I absolutely hate the delay of game, right? I hate the player inadvertently putting the puck over the boards. It's a delay of game penalty. Uh, If anything, I should be on, it should be on the second fraction. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure Nick has his personal opinions. So, uh, so now we're in the fun part, right? So if you could continue to tweak the game and change certain rules because you think that they would better the game of hockey, uh, what other things would you change?
3: Um, I get rid of the trapezoid because I want the goaltenders to play the puck as much as possible uh, with the red line out. It's not, and without zero, with zero tolerance and obstruction, uh, it's easier to generate a four check now. So if the goalies are going back to handle the puck, they're going to make more mistakes in defensemen. That's going to lead to more offense and more sustained offense. So I want the trapezoid out, number one. That would be, I think, a really important new rule, um, and it would help manufacture more offense. I'm with you on the delay of game. I'd like to see it be on the second one. I think you get one, uh, and then after that, if you do it again, you're going to get called. And I think that that would lead to some really cool water cooler moments. And I would like to see us try to get games in overtime decided by – playing rather than the shootout um, and whether we had to go from four on four to three on three, three on three to two on two, whatever it takes. But I would like to see us end the games in overtime through playing the game uh, rather than a shootout. But the rest of it, I think the game's in really good shape, really, really good shape,
2: Joe. Do you think increasing the overtime period from five to 10 minutes would, would do that? Cause I've seen that thrown out there as well.
3: It would. I believe you're right about that. But here's the one problem on that. Let's just say a team's playing its third game in three nights and they've already played in their previous two games overtime. Um, you're talking about the risk for injury. And I, I don't think any coach or manager wants to expose their players to that much injury p- potential. Um, so that's the one thing that would make me hesitant on that. But I think if we were to go from, let's just say, you play the first minute until there's a stoppage four on four. Then you go to three on three and then potentially you go to two on two. I would imagine by the time we get to two on two, there's going to be an outcome. Uh, but so maybe, you, you know, you make it so that rather than starting at three on three, you start at four on four and you go from there. But these are all the things that we all dream about. But I think the game, quite frankly, Joe
1: and Nick is in really good shape. Two on two would be absolutely wild. <laughs> Pierre, obviously, when you're starting your career, uh, the NHL wasn't as tech savvy as we are today. You know, we still had, even when we and Joe are growing up, you got the guys sitting behind the goal to press the light to yeah. when the goal is going to go in. And now we have, you know, replay and challenges and whatnot. Was there any people, you know, during your career that were very opposed to these technological advancements and on a whole here, do you feel that technology has made the game and more particularly the broadcast better?
3: Oh, I think the technology's made the broadcast a ton better. I'm um, really grateful. And I got to tell you, some of the real unseen stars of broadcast TV for hockey are the camera people, uh, and the EVS operators had all the tape and the cheap trucks. They're phenomenally, good, And they don't get nearly enough credit in our line of work but that's all due to technology and the technology continues and evolves and it's really good. So really grateful for that. I've never had one person. Um, and one of the, you know, Joe touched on it, Nick, I was very outspoken about the red line. going to come out. Uh, I had coached and played in college with no red line. And I coached and played professional hockey with a red line. Um, so I knew the trials and tribulations of both. And I also saw the players getting bigger, the coaching getting better, and what New Jersey did in terms of utilizing the red line and Dallas did in term, with Ken Hitchcock utilizing the red line as a weapon uh, and a boundary to stop play through the neutral zone. And so that's why I wanted it out. And that's one of the reasons why Peter Laviolette has been so darn good as a head coach in the NHL. He played college hockey without the red line at Westfield State um, In Massachusetts, so he understood how to manufacture offense with the red line out, and the first team to win the cup with the red line out. Lavia lets Carolina Hurricanes. So if you look at it, he figured it out far before a lot of other people. But that's of all of the ones that I fought for in just from my little perch. The red line coming out, there were some hesitancy from veteran hockey people, and I had one member of the Board of Governors who came right up to me and he said this better work because if it doesn't, it's on you. And, you know, I took that as a badge of honor, but uh, I was sure
2: hoping it was going to work. And I think it has worked. Yes, I think it has worked. And I think uh, this interview and this entire podcast has worked for us. Uh, you spoke about being phenomenally gifted. I think you phenomenally gifted yourself. Uh, I think, uh, you know, some people every now and then I hear some criticisms of you, uh, uh, but I think you are, so remotely intelligent. I think there's no other person out there who truly understands the game on both a micro and a macro level like you do. Uh, I think your work is phenomenal. Um, Nick and I are really, really appreciative that you were able to do this with us today. Uh, So what we do is we always give our guests the last words. Uh, We always give them the opportunity to share whatever they want, to promote whatever they want. Obviously, Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic there's a lot of things going on in the world so the fact that you were able to take this time out with us today uh, once again we're so appreciative for us hopefully we can have you on again hopefully we could talk about even more fun things next time Uh, we wanted to get into your career first and foremost but uh, once again thank you for coming on today really really appreciate it the floor is all yours Pierre thank you again
3: well, first of all, Joe and Nick, I'm really grateful for being on. Um, I always look at every interview opportunity as a chance to help grow the game. And if I can help in any little way, I want to do that, number one. So I'm grateful for you having me on. Number two, I love talking hockey. Um, it's such an honor and privilege to have been around this league for 33 years now. Uh, and it's something you gotta earn every single day. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity to continue to learn about players and about strategies and about coaches and about broadcasting. So you never think that you've got it finished because you you just when you think you got it figured out, you don't. And so I always pursue every day trying to learn something new. Um, but to me, the biggest thing I got to tell you is, is that I think your New York Rangers, now that I have the last word, are on such a proper track. And I'm so excited about it, Joe and Nick. Yeah, hold that up with pride. I agree with you, Joe. Um when they did this, when they had the foresight to do this um, and I, I respect Glenn say so much uh, Glenn and I have known each other a long time and, and I really appreciate what he's done in, in hockey. When they decided to do this in New York with the rebuild, it wasn't easy, but you could see what they were doing and man, oh man, have they hit it. Right. This team is going to be so good for so long and John Davidson being there to stabilize things with the brilliant management group that they have there, a really good young head coach and David Quinn, who I've known forever. David used to work hockey camps uh, with me, so I've known David a long time. Really, really like him. Adding Jean-Martin, the coaching staff, is really going to help defensively. So my, my last word, I guess, is, I can't wait to watch Ranger games. I think the Rangers are going to be a tough one to watch. I just can't wait to watch them.
1: All right, Pierre, that's excellent. Hopefully we see you, Eddie, and who knows, maybe Kenny Albert, Mike Tarico back on our TVs real soon in the start of uh, 2021 for some hockey. And for our sake, me and you, let's hope for the best with the Giants here, NFC East Championship, and uh, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. But we really appreciate it. So for our very special guest, Pierre Maguire, and for Joe Calabrese, I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know.
3: Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.